It's Wednesday, July 26, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A jury found Kevin Spacey not guilty of sexual abuse. A UK jury. Here's what he said after the verdict. But I'm enormously grateful to the jury for having taken the time to examine all of the evidence and all of the facts. So what to do with this? What to do with this? One of several adjudications of Kevin Spacey's guilt or liability in which Kevin Spacey, who we are told and who is documented, at least according to the satisfaction of the press and a civil judge in Los Angeles, was adjudicated to be a sexual harasser. Is he perhaps not a criminal sexual abuser? That's what all the courts who have looked at the case have said. The prior, to catch you up, the prior prosecutions, one was a non-prosecution in Massachusetts where prosecutors dropped the charges that Kevin Spacey sexually abused or inappropriately touched an 18-year-old. Then there was the liable trial last year in New York. This dealt with a 1986 accusation by the actor Anthony Rapp, who was 14 at the time, but the jury, who was operating just on the preponderance of the evidence standard, said it was less likely that Kevin Spacey abused Anthony Rapp than it was more likely. Preponderance of the evidence, you just have to prove by 50 point of feather more than 50%, and they just didn't think Kevin Spacey did it. Now, the UK jury just doesn't think Kevin Spacey did it. How to process that? Because as I read many in the media reacting to this trial, they think Kevin Spacey did it. They assert that this just shows how hard it is for victims to get a fair shake in the legal system or the legal systems or the three legal systems, criminal US, criminal UK, civil US. I read some of the headlines and some of the coverage in New York Magazine, their vulture section. The writer who's been covering the Spacey trial in the UK has a headline, of course Kevin Spacey thinks he's a victim. And she writes about his woe is me statement in relation to an accuser who claimed that he endured unwanted touching in his thigh, crotch, and buttocks from Spacey. What of the fact that the jury disagreed or didn't credit that accuser's accusations? Can't retroactively change a headline, nor could it change any of the rest of the coverage. Like the 2021 story, Kevin Spacey to pay $31 million in house of card damages. Let him be frankly guilty, says the subhead, though he wasn't of a crime. Is Kevin Spacey making a movie in Hungary because he thought we wouldn't notice, says New York Magazine under the sex pests heading. Well, Kevin Spacey dropped out of that movie because he was harangued to do so. Not saying Kevin Spacey's anything other than a person who certainly seems to have sexually harassed some people, or there are many people walking around who earnestly believe that Kevin Spacey sexually harassed them. But what to do with the fact that the courts have not found the same thing? Maybe one way to interpret it is miscarriage begets miscarriage. I mean, if your thesis is that the justice system is arrayed against the powerful, you're going to see this as affirming the thesis. Even the face of powerful people like Cosby, Weinstein, Danny Masterson, Weinstein again, who are convicted. It's hard to dislodge that if that is your operating principle. But if you don't allow any complicating data into it, are you really doing a great job as a thinker? Every data point just keeps confirming that principle, that it is hard for victims to get justice. You know, doomsday cults, when the end of the world doesn't come, you know what typically happens to their members. They actually get more convicted 
of the righteousness of the cult. It becomes um, some sort of proxy for the truth or depth of the belief. And maybe something like that is going on when Kevin Spacey keeps getting adjudicated as not guilty or not liable and nothing changes. If you, by the way, have found anyone or come across anyone who said, yes, I criticized Kevin Spacey in the past, but these spate of jury verdicts or non-prosecutions have at least introduced some doubt into my thinking, let me know. I'd be fascinated to see that. It seems almost impossible to come across that. I guess I am saying that. I knew that it was hard to prove a 1986 allegation, but it would seem from all this reporting and all the accusers that the UK case was solid. And this is three attempts to hold Kevin Spacey liable via the justice system, via the justice systems, American civil, American criminal, UK criminal, and none of them have worked. So I choose to at least process them as new pieces of evidence that could affect my thinking. And I also think the fact that almost no one else in America is doing this makes Kevin Spacey a sort of stand-in for much of our thinking today. On the show today, I spiel about Hunter Biden. Turns out the plea deal didn't go well or at all. But first, before he was president, Harry Truman was a young senator who created one of the most effective bipartisan committees called the Senate Special Committee to Investigate the National Defense Program. It's now referred to as the Truman Committee. Steve Drummond talks about the committee, its impact for the country during wartime, and how it is still cited today as the greatest committee to fight corruption and to just work functionally. The Watchdog, how the Truman Committee battled corruption and helped win World War II. Its author, Steve Drummond, is up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every great historical story, if written in nonfiction book form, should start with a gripping scene, maybe a shadowy figure, an exchange of missives in a cold and darkened street, maybe 
an airplane bombing raid. This one, the watchdog, how the Truman Committee battled corruption and helped win World War II, starts with a cracking good anecdote. A battleship splits in two. I've never seen or heard of that, but they heard it in the night. A tanker ship, unbidden, cracks in two. Why, how? Well, from there, we find out about the man who is charged and charges himself with investigating it, Harry Truman, the Harry Truman. Steve Drummond is the author of this chapter of Harry Truman's life. It is called The Watchdog. He joins us on The Gist. Hello, Steve. Hi, Mike. Did you know about that tanker ship cracking in two? Uh, no, I had never heard of any such thing. Although there's an interesting movie with Chris Pine that's set off the coast of Boston where some ships break up in two. Those are Liberty ships and it's exactly the same issue. So after the fact, now I become, you know, like how when you uh, when you have a certain kind of car, you start to notice them anywhere. Now I see Liberty ships cracking up everywhere. I turn around. Yeah. Or oh, the, the Bader-Meinhof yeah. effect. You've never heard of Bader-Meinhof <laughs> yep. and then Bader-Meinhof is everywhere. <laughs> So let's get to the communist factions of Germany post. No, let's get to <laughs> Harry Truman. Okay, so this ship cracks in two and they're trying to figure out why. And the answer is, well, jump ahead a little bit. It's as simple as bad steel, is it? Yep. Um, and it so happens. And th there's still a lot of debates over why these ships broke up. And uh, many metallurgists have spent dissertations writing about this but yeah it became did you a, them? yeah did you, did, did you steep yourself in metal <laughs> not any more than i absolutely had to but three months after this incident happened on uh, in january 16th 1943 it was portland oregon 10 p.m and this uh 543 foot tanker ship brand new getting ready for its first voyage all of a sudden uh, i've seen the photo it looks like a giant picked it up and just snapped it and then set it back down FBI, the fire department, everybody races to the scene thinking it's sabotage. Nope. Uh, and so there's this mystery. All these investigations are underway. And it wasn't until a hearing before the Truman Committee, three months later, involving the shipbuilder, Henry J. Kaiser, uh, that the that the kind of the secret comes out, that it was bad steel from a steel plant near Pittsburgh. Mellon steel plant. Yes. Yeah. Those still. Those are two uh, brand names still going: Kaiser Permanente and Mellon. And so it wasn't sabotage, but it was. It just wasn't the proximate cause. And Harry Truman knew that they were the war effort was in essence being sabotaged by, by graft, by grift, by laziness, by bureaucracy. Why did he, as a junior senator and not a particularly prominent one, why was he so? aroused as to take this as his cause? Um, Truman was a combat veteran himself in the First World War. He had been a kind of a county commissioner type person. It was called a county judge in Missouri, but he took his public service seriously. He had been a failed businessman. He had, uh, you know, gone belly up himself. And so um, early in, in 1941, he, he had been, he had just won re-election to a second term in the Senate. The first term he had pretty much sat there and done nothing. Um, in this, As his second term began, he was getting letters from some of his constituents where an army camp was being built in the Ozarks, Fort Leonard Wood, it was called. And these people were saying, hey, something's going on here. Guys sitting around doing nothing, uh, contractors soaking the government, uh, people making a lot of profits here and not a lot of building going on. Truman, one of the fun things about Truman he doesn't send a staffer to check it out. He doesn't go with some kind of congressional delegation. Truman gets up one morning in Washington, D.C., and he gets in his car 
and he drives there to Missouri to check this place out. And there he is, a little guy in a suit wandering around, quietly asking questions. He keeps going. He visits a bunch of other construction sites and he finds the same thing, waste corruption, guys sitting around playing cards. He comes back to Washington. Rotting piles of material that could be used. And he's just probably calculating in his head because he is a farmer, because he's a failed farmer, because he's not a college graduate. So he has to get by on what we used to call street smarts. I would also say, because he's not some sort of brilliant orator, right? His skills are more aligned with the practical and let's make this thing work. He's a logistics expert. Maybe that wasn't the term for it then, but this appalls him. And luckily, because he's who he is, he says, I could do something about this. Exactly. He comes back to Washington pretty pissed off about this. He makes a speech in the Senate and he says, hey, we shouldn't have an investigating committee and look into this. He knew also after World War One, after the war, there were 117 congressional investigations looking into all this waste and, and such. And Truman knew what's the point? You know, the, the, the job is done. His idea, fairly original one, was let's do the investigation while the, while we're getting ready, while we're building up for this war that we expect to be coming, let's do it now and let's try and save the taxpayers a few bucks. Um, and so that's that's where the idea for the committee came from. Yeah. And, you know, one of those World War One investigations, as you note, was going on into the 1930s. So what the hell use is that? So Truman wants to start a commission. They grant him the princely sum of $15,000, which in today's money is the not so princely sum of about $325,000. It seems like they didn't say no, but by the amount of power, staffing and money they gave him, they practically said no. So a couple of questions about that. Why didn't they want Truman poking around? Because you talk about that, you know, the Democrats mm-hmm. were fearful that the Republicans might do it. And why did they? It seems like they set him up to fail. And who's the they? Um, the Senate leadership and Franklin Roosevelt, as you say, n- nobody was crazy about this. An unknown senator of the president's own party poking his nose into the administration business. Almost certainly those findings were going to be very critical. Nobody, including Roosevelt, thought this was a good idea. Also, Truman was not a popular guy. He was considered a kind of a machine political tool. He was known as the senator from Pendergast, from the Kansas City boss, Tom Pendergast. Roosevelt, just three months earlier, had favored Truman's opponent for re-election. So Truman was not a popular guy. As you mentioned, it soon became clear, though, if 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 the Democrats didn't do this, the Republicans would. And so this was a bit of a steam valve. Sure, they gave they tossed Truman a bone. They gave him a teeny tiny sum of fifteen thousand bucks, barely enough to hire a lawyer and a couple of secretaries. And they said, yeah, go go to it. The amazing thing is Truman took that took that teeny weeny amount of money and ran with it and turned it into this incredibly probably the most powerful Congress investigating arm that Congress had ever seen. Because he studied past investigations and he learned from the mistakes. Yep. There was an investigation during the Civil War called the Committee on the Conduct of War or something like that by Lincoln's own party. They drove Abe Lincoln nuts. Uh, Truman had read all of their transcripts and he learned some key lessons from that. He said, we're not going to look at military strategy. We're not going to look at how you're, you know, where you're sending the soldiers or how you're doing stuff. We're just going to look at these contracts. We're going to make sure the taxpayers are getting their money worth, money's worth. Yeah. It seems inconceivable that he'd go back and even the language of the Civil War. But when you think about it, it was 80 years prior, just like yeah. the period we're talking about is 80 years prior. Um, maybe it's because we're how old we are. <laughs> it doesn't seem inconceivable. <laughs> it doesn't seem- yeah. So <sighs> Truman 
he's historic, he's tactical, he's yep. logistic. What decisions does he make based on either his uh, gut, his understanding of human nature, understanding how the game is played in Washington? He wasn't much of an accomplished senator, but he was taking notes. What are some of the smart moves that he makes in how he conducts his committee? Yep. And I think it's significant to note that there were a lot of other investigations going on at the same time. There's the Military Affairs Committee and the House Judiciary, you know, all this stuff. Only one became front page news around the country. And I think there's a few things that Truman did that made this work. One, he made it bipartisan. Um, he asked for seven senators, five Democrats, two Republicans. Two, um, there was a lot of push from the Senate leadership and the vice president at the time to stack this committee with Roosevelt loyalists, you know, sort of staunch New Dealers. Truman kind of pushed back on that. He he assembled this sort of senatorial B list of efficient but not flashy senators. And then a couple of other key things. Usually the job, uh, the main job in this committee would be the chief counsel. Usually you tossed a bone to some guy who had just lost re-election or you hired a prominent private attorney who would kind of mail it in in his spare time. Truman called the attorney general of the United, the United States. and He said, I want your best prosecutor. Give me the best one. Uh, he was recommended a 36-year-old attorney named Hugh Fulton, who had just uh, prosecuted a utilities um, executive in New York City to the tune of 200 million, who had defrauded the, the taxpayers of a couple hundred million dollars. Um, he said, I want that guy. Uh, he did that. Um, he set out with a few things that congressional investigations didn't usually do. Before the reports came out, they would send them to U.S. Steel or the Pentagon, or sorry, the Army or the Navy at that time. And they would say, hey, look it over, check it out. If there's any facts wrong, they would get a chance to correct any facts or weigh in on it. And then Truman would sit around with his senators in his office in a little room off his office called the doghouse, often over a glass of bourbon, perhaps. And they would hash this out so that amazingly, in Truman's time as chairman, they would put out 32 reports every single one of them unanimous and bipartisan. So the, and, and so after a while, the press and the public came to believe that when the Truman Committee put out a report, you could actually believe it. And, and oftentimes they were bringing bad news that the American people you know, weren't super happy to hear, but felt like they weren't getting the straight information anywhere else. This could embarrass people. This could embarrass a general, an admiral. It could embarrass the president. Truman was very concerned with that. Yes. You write about one specific uh, article that was uh, sort of a ghost written by him, and he had some what could be perceived as insults uh, against Roosevelt in the article. And this was this was big. You know, media management was gigantic at the time. So all of this was going on. He could offend people, but and I'm going to bring us to today and talk about what the goal is, was an overriding fact that would inform everything he was doing that fundamentally America was united and wanted to win the war. It seems that that was very important, even though politics is politics and egos are fragile and careers and people are venal. That fact seemed to very much help, help Truman and Truman tapped into that fact, I think. He did very much so. And this was a unique time. Uh, 
you know, the, the part of the reason, certainly, that he was able to form this bipartisan committee and pull everybody together was that it was a, cri- a crisis period. But having said that, he started this committee a year before Pearl Harbor. There was plenty of politics going on. There was plenty of division in the country. And as I said, there were plenty other investigations in which the chairman was grandstanding or seeking headlines. Truman showed time and time again, he, he would do a couple of things. One, he was willing to not take the credit. He would let one of the other senators on the committee deliver the report. The other thing he did very wisely was on a couple of key reports, he would take it over the White House three days before it came out. He'd give Roosevelt the heads up. Often Roosevelt would make a move right ahead of the report coming out. Truman didn't care. He says in his memoirs, I don't care. I let Roosevelt get the credit. I didn't care who got the credit. I just wanted to get this done. So he was... um, he was he was a politician. He there's no you know, this is all public service, but it, it was all taking place in this political context. But also it's also true, as you know, that a couple of times he slipped and a couple of times he got in hot water with with Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic Party. Yeah, but it also seems to be a rebuke to the idea when someone says, oh, it's all politics or you're just a politician. I mean, politics can be, well, first of all, the reason we have politics is we live in a democracy, right? So if we were living in a dictatorship, that wouldn't be such a uh, nefarious uh, pejorative term. But he played politics well, and that wasn't uh, some ugly making a deal with the devil. It was, it actually showed, you show in your book how when you really do understand politics, which is the motivations of different constituencies you're dealing with, it can be an extremely effective tool and not one to say, you know, is dragging us all down. Yeah. One of the, one of the big challenges, here's a really good example that I think is really relevant today, was Truman's dealing with the War Department and the Navy Department. And they were not happy about this investigation. They were not happy about these constant requests. Hey, can you, uh, can you send over all the paperwork on this contract or whatever? Truman played this very wisely. His main goal was to get the pro- whatever the problem was, get it fixed without embarrassing his boss, Franklin Roosevelt, without embarrassing the Navy or the Army. And he would call up and say, hey, you got a problem over there. Why don't you guys get this fixed? And when that happened, Truman was fine. No harm, no foul, all quiet. Let's just let's just get the problem solved. It was when he got stonewalled, either by the Army or the Navy or a, a big contractor like Wright Aeronautical or U.S. Steel. When he didn't get what he wanted, uh, Truman had a temper, and that's when the subpoenas came out, and he'd say, okay, let's call a public hearing. All the reporters will be there. Secretary of the Navy Knox, you will come and testify before our committee and answer some tough questions. So he did play this game very astutely. As you found out through the investigation of the Truman Committee, all these frauds, all these scams, or all these uh, examples of waste and mismanagement, what did you conclude about human nature? Is it, I, I could just think of a couple things. One, within any um, viable, sincere organization or effort, there'll be the temptation to skim a little off the top. Or is it more that within any sincere a portion of the population, there'll be some that are just totally insincere. I think so. And I think there's a little bit of that. You're going to see the whole gamut here. And we still have all these same things today. The other thing was there was such pressure. These people, you know, you know, you're, you're the, you're the manager of inspections at a steel company and your boss is like, Hey man, we're under pressure. We got to, you know, there's a war on, we got to get the steel out here. The bosses need us to produce more steel. Somebody's going to cut corners. There was an aircraft engine factory in near Dayton, Ohio, where they were shipping bad engines with parts missing and all this stuff. These engines, according to Truman, were going into airplanes and causing planes to crash. And it ends up, in that case, three uh, officers in the Army Air Force were court-martialed and kicked out of the service. But it's a lot of, it's a bit of a mix of um, greed, 
pressure, haste, mismanagement, and just, you know, there's old-fashioned incompetence to play in here too. When you think about the uh, hearings of today, the committees of today, there are some that are just facially the purpose of which is to generate headlines. It's pretty much easy to see what's going on there. They're not ever going to eschew public embarrassment to get something done because public embarrassment is the point. But there are other committees that you know, maybe have some of their purposes to accrue glory to the committee members, but some is to get something done. And then there was, you know, the 9-11 committee, or there was this COVID committee that actually wasn't really fully funded, but it seems like they did excellent work um, via a private organization. What are the principles that the Truman Committee can or did teach these bona fide committees as they work today? I think all of these committees that you just mentioned, I think they trace their roots, their DNA back to the Truman Committee and a few things. One, Truman recognized that the staffers were super important and that hiring a decent and you know engaged chief counsel to run the committee was key. Truman's willingness to uh, not take all the credit and to back away from sort of grandstanding or sensational headlines, that was key. And then this model they established, this was the first time that they basically established a model for how to do things properly. If somebody, for example, was summoned before the committee, Truman uh, created the innovation. They were allowed to read an opening statement. That wasn't something that it historically, one, they were given two or three days notice. They weren't just sort of uh, blindsided and told to show up the next morning. And then this questioning began. They were allowed to prepare a, a opening statement, sometimes lengthy. They would read it out there. And then this back and forth, both with the people who had testified. If U.S. Steel, for example, there was endless back and forth over the Steel report, and the Truman Committee was willing to say, okay, all this happened, but since then they've taken some steps to clean it up. But it was this willingness to totally focus on the facts. And then the other thing Truman and his chief counsel, Hugh Fulton, did, they tried to keep opinion out of it. They just really laser focused on the facts. And so as a result, every time 40 years ago, there was a you know $1.5 trillion stimulus package. Nancy Pelosi goes on the Colbert report. This is I saw this that night. And Stephen Colbert, the first question he asks her is, tell me about the Truman Committee. Um, it, we, uh, if you Google it right now, every time there's some giant bill before Congress, somebody is tweeting saying, we need a Truman Committee to look into this. And that's, I think, probably the biggest legacy of the Truman Committee. The name of the book is The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. The author is Steve Drummond. Steve, thank you so much. Mike, that was a blast. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. Hunter Biden's entire business career can be summed up by the description. He's just a guy with a little guilt in his heart who's looking to deal. And after federal charges, tax evasion, a donor paying those taxes, a plea deal, a whole laptop, stripper, substance abuse, love child, former sister-in-law liaisons, and references to the big guy, Hunter showed up in court today once more as a guy with a little guilt in his heart, but ready to deal. One obstacle to the deal was not the prosecutor who signed off on the deal or Hunter's lawyers who obviously like the deal that keeps their client out of jail. It was the judge. As per CNN's courthouse reporting, the judge did not understand how the prosecutors could promise that this ends everything. I mean, clearly there might still be some charges pending. But if you can charge that, then what does this mean? And the prosecutors 
actually she asked Hunter Biden's attorneys about that, and he said, well, then there's no deal. And the prosecutor said, then there is no deal. So Biden's team said that the plea agreement, as far as they understood it, was now null and void. They were moving ahead to talk about what the next steps would be in this case. So as of right now, the deal appears to be dead and off the table. It is true that Judge Mary Ellen Narika was a Trump appointee, but it's also true that she asked a pretty straightforward question and the prosecutors humana 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 it. Personally, I have seen no evidence that ties Hunter Biden to Joe Biden, but I have seen a lot more evidence that Hunter Biden's travails are legitimate travails and not the invention of the right-wing media solely. And some of the statements that Joe Biden has made, not about his love and support for Hunter, but about the charges against Hunter, some of Joe Biden's statements have been inaccurate. Were they a lie? That goes to the standards of one's mind at the time, mens rea. Oh my, even Joe Biden has mens rea. You might say it's a lie. I don't know. Let's play back a clip from the one debate when Hunter Biden came up. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly be. what, is this that's where you're exactly going? what This is told. where he's going. This does not mean it goes all the way up to the big guy. It does mean you'd be right to have skepticism whenever the president or those speaking on his behalf gives assurances about his son, Hunter, whose laptop was real, was verified not to have been planted by Russia. All information that could have, and you could argue should have been known when Joe Biden cited 50 experts about the laptop being a hoax. Anyway, the laptop's not a smoking gun. Maybe for Hunter's embarrassment, it is nothing seems to have nothing to do with Joe Biden's time as president, but it does introduce a little more reasonable doubt about statements about Hunter and the president. There are, of course, many, many unreasonable doubts that are frequently voiced, full-throatedly voiced from Republican precincts, but I don't think that these questions have zero impossibility of crossing over. In other words, every day that more and more that we were assured wasn't true about Hunter seems to become true, it becomes more and more possible that this redounds to the president's detriment. I also don't think that it is impossible that we're going to find something reasonably credibly tying Joe Biden to Hunter Biden in more ways than simply the relationship between supportive dad and wastrel son. And you know that this being politics in America in 2023, the reasonable part of all of this is far from a necessary condition. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara, senior producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. We had an international observer today, David Ho. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. We made the credits. Oh, nice. That's right.